This week we're continuing on in our sermon series in the Gospel of John, True and Better, and we're actually going to be uh, in the same passage we've been in the last two weeks. It's because I think this is a truly remarkable uh, passage, this interaction of Jesus with this Samaritan woman at the well. And this will be our last week in this particular passage. And before we move on, I want to point out some things that I think we could possibly miss along the way as we're reading through this. Now, as I've said in previous weeks, this is the longest individual conversation that Jesus has with anybody in the Gospels. So there's sections in the Gospels where he's teaching to maybe a public group that are longer, like the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but as far as one-on-one -on -one conversations with someone, this is the longest one. And it's significant for a lot of reasons. It's significant, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, because of who he's speaking to. He's speaking to a Samaritan woman who had been married and divorced five times. Who had shame heaped on her by everyone around her, seemingly. Um, and it, that's even aside from anything she might have done wrong. That's just the stuff heaped on her because of who she is as a Samaritan, as a woman, and as someone who's been uh, used and abused by the men in her life. Um, and that in this interaction with Jesus, she receives an uh, invitation to walk out of the shame that, that bears down on her shoulders and to walk into the freedom of who uh, God's grace can make her. To be, and that, uh, and then last week we talked a little bit about this idea of worship. And this conversation that they have turns to where can I find God? And Jesus makes clear that in Him, God's grace is exploding into the world, for <laughs> lack of a better description. And no longer in uh, God's working will it be uh, you. You got to travel to the physical location of the temple in Jerusalem to find God. No, that God seeks. God doesn't stand on a mountain and ask people to come to him. He seeks out his people to give grace. And this week we're going to be focusing on uh, the we of the gospel. I've called this the y'all of the gospel before. But the community aspect of what it means to be people who together are encountering the grace of Jesus. So with that said, we're going to look at verses, uh, starting with verse 19, which kind of picks up in the middle of their conversation and go through verse 42. Um, so John 4, 19-42. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and is now come. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is Spirit and His worshipers must worship the Spirit and the truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when He comes, He will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am He. Just then, His disciples returned. And they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking to her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat and he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then the disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. 
Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefit of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that in it we get a glimpse of who you are and what you're about. Uh, and thus a glimpse of who we are and what we are to be about. So in these moments, move by your spirit to open the eyes of our hearts to see you, your beauty and majesty, to love you all the more. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I've uh, probably the most impactful class I ever took in all of my learning was my senior year English class, senior year of high school. Um, it was great. It was so much fun. And, and I've always loved books. I've always loved to read. I've always loved movies. I've always loved a good story. I like being captured by a really good story, a good plot. And before this class, I had learned, you know, through my English classes before about things like symbolism and allegory that, you know, a, a character could be more than just a character in a story. But I never really understood that. I never got that there could be meanings and significances and stories that were more than just, this is a cool story. But in that class is when it clicked. I remember it clicking. And our teacher was wonderful, Miss, uh, Miss Rainey. She, uh, she was fantastic, tried in high school. And she guided us through these books and stories and poems and plays. And, uh, and one of the biggest things she did was she made space for us as a class to discuss and to debate, sometimes about meaning. Uh, and it was in that class that I really came to understand and appreciate the power of literature. Suddenly, Frankenstein wasn't just a book about a monster. Um, Lord of the Flies wasn't just a neat story about a bunch of kids on a deserted island. Um, and as we discussed these books in the class, bigger understandings of the stories and understandings of life came to blossom in my mind. So much of that was because I was reading these books together with my classmates, with our teacher guiding the way. And the truth is, the truth is, apart from their insights, apart from wrestling with them through these books and poems and plays, my understanding of so many things would have remained limited and partial. Maybe I still would have liked this story, but it would just been a good story. Um, it was through this interaction, this wrestling with my classmates and guided by our teacher that I came to a greater appreciation of the power of art, of literature. Now, I think that that can be true of our coming to understand the grace of Jesus. You know, maybe we have individually a powerful experience of finding his forgiveness and his love. And maybe we come to have a decent understanding of Jesus through our own experience, our own individual experience of who he is. Um, and maybe that experience has been really dramatic and life-changing. But if that stays in isolation... If it stays just Jesus and me, I think our appreciation of the height and the depth of the immeasurable riches of His grace, as Scripture puts it, it remains partial. 
It remains limited in ways that it doesn't have to be. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons that we are joined together in a local church. That in each other, as we're wrestling with faith and doubts, as we're seeing the grace of Jesus and the uniqueness of each other's personalities and stories, we come to get a bigger picture of actually who He is. We get a grander picture of His glory, His beauty, and His majesty. His holiness are all brought to life through our experience of the we of the gospel, this community of people that are surrounding the promises of God, the community that the gospel creates. Now, I think we see that in this passage, and I want to point out where we see it. The first one is we see it with the woman that Jesus is talking to and the Samaritan people in the village where she lives. Now, we might miss this on our first pass, but Jesus is encountering this lonely people, she, lonely woman. She's cut off from her community for the most part. As we said in the sermon a couple weeks ago, she's going to the well at the hottest part of the day. She's not going there because she really likes the heat. She's going so she can avoid the you know, sideways glances of the people from the town. She's persona non grata. She is not respected there. And so she wants to avoid the snickers, the, the laughing. Jesus encounters her, and she's cut off from just about everybody. And in the midst of her encounter with him, we see her gradually gaining a bit of freedom from this shame and a greater understanding of exactly who she's talking to. Because if we start, I actually didn't start here, but in verse 9 of this passage in John 4, when she first encounters Jesus, she calls him just a Jew. She's encountered many, many Jewish men, and so she just calls him, he's a Jew at this well. He's like many men she's seen before. In verse 11, 15, and 19, she calls him sir. So it goes from just generic Jew to sir, this kind of more respectful uh, interaction. And Jesus calls her, and I want to say this too because it can seem jarring, Jesus calls her woman. Now that's not Jesus saying woman. It, like, I don't know. I, I sometimes use, and I need to apologize to my mom because Jesus uh, says this to his mom too, uh, I, I used to justify that and yeah, I called my mom woman a couple of times. And that's not good. That's not what it is. But what's going on here is the word that's translated woman, it's kind of more like our man. And so Jesus is in this interaction and she's calling him sir. He's calling her man. So he goes from just a Jew to sir. And she's, she's wrestling with these questions. They've got this dialogue that's going back, to, back and forth. And I think she's starting to realize that something unique is happening here because she asks him, some pointed questions about worship, about uh, uh, the significance of her ancestry, and, you know, her father Jacob, she talks about that. In verse 25, which is in our passage, you can see in response to a discussion about worship, the God who seeks, she subtly asks, essentially, are you the Messiah? She says, we know the Messiah is going to explain all things when he comes. And Jesus says, well, the one who's talking to you, I am. Jew, sir, are you the Messiah? And in verse 28, she runs back into town. Verse 28, she runs back into town. And what does she do? At least in our passage, the way it's recorded for us, all she can say is, he told me everything I ever did. That's the only thing she can find to explain why this guy at the well is so significant that everybody in town needs to go see who he is. He's told me everything I've er I ever did, but the question still remains. She says, could this be the Messiah? It's almost like she doesn't trust her own ears. And she's running into town. 
to bring everybody out. She's had this incredible encounter, and it's like she can't put it into words. And notice at the end of our passage, it's only in the context of her bringing other people and them having an encounter with Jesus and her seeing it that the clearest picture of who he is is gained. He's no longer just a Jew, sir, or maybe the Messiah, as the end of verse 42 says. We know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Greater and greater clarity of understanding of exactly who Jesus is. Now notice a few things. The first one's this. Her understanding of Jesus gradually dawned over time. In the midst of even just this conversation, it didn't happen all at once. It wasn't like a USB drive put in and it was uploaded and she's like, got my Apostles' Creed down, I'm going to recite it and know who this guy in front of me is. It didn't all come at once. And even when Jesus said, I am the Messiah, she still had doubts that she was wrestling with. It all seemed too good to be true. But notice this as well. She's not condemned in the midst of her doubts. She's not painted in this passage as someone who should have got it earlier, as soon as Jesus said it. There's no disappointment that she was too slow to get it, no. Because her doubt in the face of Jesus, it wasn't her closing the door. It wasn't obstinance. It wasn't her saying, no, I don't believe you. It was the sincere questioning of faith. That's at the essence of what faith is in this world, wrestling. So that's the first thing. Her understanding of who Jesus is gradually gone over time. The second is this. Her cognitive understanding and her ability to verbalize what she is experiencing lagged behind her experience. She didn't have the words to fit the experience that she had just had. She couldn't find the words. And again, that's not a fault of hers. It's not an issue. That, that's okay. Notice how God used her, even in all she was able to say is, this man told me everything I ever did, could this be the Messiah? That's what God used to draw whole people out of this village to Jesus. She couldn't articulate the details of exactly who this was. She didn't have grand words to say. She knew that she had just had a powerful experience of grace, and she needed to tell people about it. And even through her stammering, even through her inability to verbalize it, God used that. And that's true, always. That's true of all who truly encounter Jesus. Words fail, even our best words. Words are great. I love words. I read a lot. I write a lot. Words are fantastic. But words always fail before the reality of who Jesus is. That's why Scripture talks about it as a peace that surpasses understanding. It's a grace that is beyond our describing. And we keep describing it because it's worth continuing to try to describe, but we never can describe the fullness of his glory and his love. So that's the second thing. The first was her understanding gradually dawned over time. The second is that her ability to verbalize it lagged behind her experience. And the third is this. Her greatest understanding of who Jesus is only came with a community of people encountering him together. Her, the, the biggest picture of the glory of Jesus in this passage only came as a bunch of different people encountered the grace of Jesus together. That's when the clearest picture of who he is happened. But that doesn't just happen to the woman and the Samaritans in this passage. It also happens to the disciples. 
Not just the Samaritans. Look in verse 27. The disciples returned. Now, they had gone into the village to get food because the whole reason they stopped at this well in the first place, it says, is because Jesus was tired. And so <laughs> Jesus is tired, and he stops at the well, and the disciples run into town to grab some food. And they're a bit scandalized when they get back. They don't say anything. It says it in verse 27. But they're scandalized because their rabbi, this guy that they've left everything to follow and learn from, He's having this conversation out here in public for everybody to see with this disreputable woman. They don't mention it. I think the reason they don't bring it up is because they maybe are starting to learn by this point that Jesus, uh, when he's up to something they don't expect, it's kind of best to let him lead the way and, and un, unfurl its meaning. Uh, let him take the lead on this. Um, but then they urge him to eat. Now he's tired, he's hungry. They urge him to eat. And in verse 32, he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Now, this isn't Jesus demonstrating some superhuman ability to not have to eat food. Um, he's speaking in some symbolic terms here. And what he's saying is he has a nourishment that goes beyond just physical bread to eat. He has a nourishment, uh, in verse 34, as he says it, it's the delight of doing the will of God and finishing the work he's been given to do. That that's the sustenance of Jesus. That's his nourishment and his soul is to complete this work that God had given him to do. And then he tells them something about themselves. He's talking to his disciples. He tells them something about the calling that he is giving them. And he uses this imagery of, of, of farming, of harvesting, reaping. He tells them a couple of things. First, he tells them to open their eyes and look to the fields because they are ripe for, for harvest. What is Jesus specifically telling them to look at here? Well... First, the imagery of harvest was a common one if you read through the Old Testament. It's an image that pointed to God bringing his work of redemption to its culmination. Him gathering all of his people to himself. It's pictured in terms of a farmer going out and harvesting this crop. He's bringing everything into the storehouse. And what Jesus is telling his disciples here, who knew this imagery, he's telling him, them that all of these disciples, I mean all of these Samaritans, Verse 30 tells us that they are all coming out of the village to Jesus with the woman at the front leading the way. That these Samaritans are God harvesting. <laughs> this is God bringing his people to himself to give them grace. Open your eyes because the fields are ripe for harvest. Look at these people walking toward you. The harvest has already begun. And though the disciples may think that this harvest looks strange and is out of time, that's what he's talking about with the, isn't it four months to harvest? The disciples are probably looking at the Samaritans going, wait, maybe the Old Testament hints at the grace of God coming to people who aren't Jewish, but not yet. <laughs> not yet, right? It may seem strange and out of time to them, but this is God's doing. And this is a, a, an indicator of the calling the disciples have for the rest of their lives. Because so much of their experience as the foundational apostles of the church is seeing the grace of God come to people that they don't expect and maybe don't like. If you read through the book of Acts, it's all over the place. The book of Acts starts off big. Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost and thousands of people come to faith. But the very first internal crisis that the church ever has is a dispute over the distribution of bread to poor widows. So that very first influx of people into the church are not people with resources and means. 
It's widows who need help. And that's not a problem. But I'm sure the apostles, when they're talking here and through their ministry with Jesus, thought, we're going to go out, we're going to preach, and it's going to be the Sanhedrin. It's going to be the leaders. The leaders will come in and people will follow after them. No, the first folks coming in are poor people that seemingly on the outside have nothing to bring to the table, only needs. And then as the, the church begins to grow and it stretches beyond just the bounds of the Jewish folks, it goes to Samaritans. It goes to Gentiles. And by the end of their ministry, by the end of their decades of testifying to the grace of Jesus, the disciples look around and they see a church that is majority Gentile. So much of their calling was seeing the grace of God come to people that they would not expect, that they wouldn't pick themselves. Um, maybe people they didn't like or didn't want to trust the wrong types of people finding life forgiveness now remember the things we pointed out about the woman the same is true of the disciples here first their understanding of who Jesus was only dawned gradually they didn't just have one conversation with Jesus like the Samaritan woman did here they had been following Jesus for a while at this point and they continue to follow him for years now, here in gospel, the Gospel of John, they had already been told great things about Jesus from John the Baptist, from the Old Testament Scriptures. They had been told great things about Jesus from himself. They had seen him do incredible things. But their understanding of the wideness of his grace and the true depth of his love only dawned over time. It didn't come all at once. And that's okay. That's okay for us. That may be true of us. Um... God is not afraid of our lack of understanding. He's not afraid of our doubts. Uh, I, my opinion is much less than God's, but I'm not afraid of your doubts or mine either. Uh, and you don't have to be either. Maybe you haven't completely arrived at the fullness of who Jesus is. Maybe it's wrestling with his claims. That's okay. That's okay. Keep coming back. He has the words of eternal life. He has the forgiveness and grace that can be found nowhere else in all the world. Keep coming back. The doubts don't bar you off from who He is. Second, just like the woman, their understanding of Him and their ability to verbalize it lagged behind their experience. I think that's part of the reason why the scriptures that these men wrote, so many of these disciples that are walking up here at this well went on to write the New Testament decades later. They didn't turn around that day and write it down. And I think the reason why is they needed years of following of Jesus. They needed years of experiencing His grace together, of seeing grace come to Samaritans and Jews, to slave, to poor, to rich, to Gentiles, to all types of people. They needed to see that and experience that in the church to come to the fullness of this picture of His glory. They needed to see the transforming power of Jesus at work before they could write about it with the depth that it deserved. Now, we're not going to write Scripture. That's, that's not in anybody's cards. There's nothing you're going to write later on that we need to stat, staple onto the back of the Bible for, for everybody else. Um, but maybe there's some fear about being able to verbalize your faith. Maybe there's some fear about being able to explain it with the right word. Maybe there's some fear that a train will go by. Is really like, no. Maybe there's going to be some fear about that. You don't have to be afraid. Um, as we said with the woman, God used, this man told me everything I ever did, 
Could he be the Messiah to be the grand sermon that brought all these people to <laughs> God used the stammering and the missteps of the apostles and that, those disciples that are gathered there to build his church in that first generation. We don't have to wait until we get, we feel like we have honed our theology just right to be able to be witnesses of who Jesus is in this world. Now, third, the greatest understanding of who Jesus is for the disciples only came with a community of people encountering him together. As we said, Jesus, uh, the disciples traveled with Jesus day in, day out. But here at this well, they discovered that they still had prejudices about Samaritans and about women. Now, maybe they thought they didn't, but as soon as they walked up from town with food in their hands and they saw Jesus speaking to this woman, what's going on in their hearts is why, as it says, they didn't ask, what do you want, Jesus? Or why are you speaking with her? They needed to see Jesus topple these prejudices before their eyes and in their own hearts to gain the clearest understanding of who he, was, who he is. And when the prejudices came up beside the grace of Jesus, and this may happen with us too, we don't have to be afraid that there might be some recesses of our heart that hold on to prejudices, whatever they might be. But when they come up beside Jesus, we go with Jesus every time. When our prejudices come up beside the grace of Jesus, we go with Jesus, we leave the prejudices behind. And if the disciples didn't, if they continued to harbor the prejudice about the Samaritan woman, they would have missed the grandeur of the glory of God right before their eyes. They would have missed it. They would have missed a bigger picture of who Jesus is. Now, friend, that's true today for us here, right here in Dunn. In our small church, we have diversity of experience and circumstance. But our understanding individually of the profound depth of God's love for us in Christ will always remain limited. It will always remain partial if we do not open ourselves up to see the grace of Jesus in other people. So every new person that comes to faith, every child or adult that's baptized, every person who wrestles with who Jesus claims to be, through every single one of those experiences, as we're having them individually and walking alongside people who are having them, we get a bigger and clearer and grander picture of our king and his kingdom. Now, the Samaritan woman, she couldn't see all of who Jesus is without seeing her neighbors come to him, too. The Samaritan villagers, they would have remained in ignorance if she did not have the courage to come and tell them, this man told me everything I ever did, and it wasn't shaming. The disciples, they would have remained in their prejudice and ignorance if they hadn't watched a crowd of the wrong kind of people come to Jesus and find the invitation of eternal life as a source of identity and thriving that can't run dry. The lesson for us this morning is this, that Christianity is never just a Jesus and me thing. It's not me and Jesus and we hang out and I don't need other people. It's us. It's the we of the gospel, the community that's created that surrounds the promises of we're brought together. And the truth is there's aspects of his glory that we can only see through each other. That I can only see and will only see through you. And aspects of the glory of Jesus that you will only see in the context of relationships with other people who are being transformed by him. There's aspects of his love that I only get a glimpse of when I see uh, 
when we see each other, not with the religious masks that we tend to wear and hide behind, but when we see each other as people who might have big faults, but people who are dearly loved, being changed by His grace. Uh, in conclusion, so uh, I'm a fan of the Marvel movies. Who isn't, right? They've made billions of dollars. Probably my favorite one is Guardians of the Galaxy, I, I think. Either that or Black Panther, but Guardians of the Galaxy is probably my favorite. And if you've never seen it, I won't give away all of it, but the, the, it's, it's a band of misfits in outer space. It's almost like a western in outer space, but it's this band of misfits that kind of get thrown together and they stumble across this thing of incredible power. And this thing of incredible power is really too much for any one person to hold by themselves. They can't do it. It's too big. And in fact, we find by the end of the movie that the only way that they can hold this thing of great power is together. The only way they can hold this thing of great power and see it uh, be used for good <laughs> is together. Now, in the movie, it's literally them holding hands. Um, when we talk about the grace of Jesus and seeing him in all his glory, now, we're not talking about something that if we try to wield it, like we're going to dissolve into dust or whatever from a marble. But we are talking about something that we are meant to hold together. A power that we're meant to hold together as one. A grace and glory that is only clearer and only really comes to life when we hold it together. So how do we apply this truth to our lives in closing? The first is this. In the midst of our relationships with others who are followers of Christ, in the midst of our church, don't hide. Don't hide. Now, this doesn't mean you walk in the door and you start saying everything you've ever did <laughs> every Sunday. You know, we're not going to have a session of confession where we say all our deepest, darkest secrets every week. But when we walk in to worship together, don't hide. The church of Jesus Christ, of all the places on the earth, should be a place where we shouldn't have to lie about who we are. Now, I'm going to quote Toy Story here, but that's okay. You got troubles, I got them too. You struggle with sin and selfishness, me too. You struggle with prejudice and hatred, me too. Really. So, I struggle with them, you do. Let's struggle together. Let's struggle together and watch the grace of Jesus, the powerful grace of Jesus that is more powerful than our sin. Let's watch that come alive in the process. Let's repent of our sins and turn away from them for real together. Let's see our sins as taken away at the cross of Jesus together. And let's walk in the newness of life that is ours in his resurrection from the dead together. We're meant to hold this together. The next piece of this is, is prioritize these relationships. God's brought us together for a reason. And so let's prioritize each other. Now that might not mean that we start building into our week, we're going to have breakfast together three times a week. That's fine if you want to buy me breakfast three times a week. Um, I'm kidding. Um, but we can prioritize each other. Let's become more and more important to each other. Let's pray for each other and be purposeful about it. Let's worship together and prioritize that. Let's get creative about ways for us to serve other people together. We're meant to do this together. And the third one, and this is in closing, let's be prepared to be baffled by this grace. The grace of God is baffling. 
The grace of God is, as we've said, beyond us being able to truly define it in all its grandeur. The grace of God comes to people we don't expect. It comes in ways we don't expect and maybe ways we don't want. Let's be prepared together to be baffled at the way that our King shows us His love. The way that our Father shows us that He delights in us as daughters and sons. Let's be baffled together by this wonderful grace.